Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about a new book from Faith Matters Publishing. It's called Restoration by Patrick Mason. Um, When we started the Faith Matters Publishing Project, one of our goals was to explore what restoration really means as the church moves into its third century, and that's exactly what Patrick does. If you're like me and you've ever wondered how restoring Israel can be relevant to you, you've got to read this book. Patrick shows how, as members of the church, it's our mission to truly lead out in bringing wholeness and healing to the marginalized and the vulnerable. This book absolutely lit a fire for me, and it has totally changed the way I view my own engagement with the church and with the world. I really can't recommend this book strongly enough. It's the kind of book you want everyone you know to be reading too, so that you can talk about it. So you can pick up a copy for yourself or for your friends and family at Desert Book, um, Amazon, Audible, and Apple Books. Okay, that's it on the book for now, but we'll be sharing a lot more in the near future. Thanks as always, and here's the episode. Hi friends, welcome to the Faith Matters Podcast. The Faith Matters Foundation is dedicated to exploring a thoughtful and expansive view of the restored gospel. For more podcasts, articles, and community, go to faithmatters.org. Well, welcome to this uh, video chat podcast conversation um, with Faith Matters. Faith Matters, to give a little context, I think if you're listening to this, you may know, but Faith Matters is... um, our aim is to create a community that's able to explore an expansive view of the restored gospel, um, to consider things and discuss things that I think a lot of us are thinking about and talking about. Um, so this provides a platform to do that. This specific conversation is a part of the Faith Matters Foundation's Big Question series. This series is where we answer questions that we get from Latter-day Saints. Often these questions are questions we've had ourselves Um, as contributing members of Faith Matters, and also that we've heard from other members of the church. So that's the kind of the context that this conversation fits into. My name is Kate Hargadon, and I help facilitate these conversations and have these discussions, which is really meaningful for me. Um, I want to introduce Tim Chavez, who is with us. He is also a big contributor to uh, Faith Matters and our work that we do. Tim is a BYU alum, go Cougs, and also um, went to Harvard Business School. He's a tech entrepreneur and an integral, integral contributor to our team. So we'll be able to hear from Tim a little bit. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. I also wanted to introduce Patrick Mason, who is with us. I was telling Patrick earlier that I'm kind of a fangirl of his work. I um, I guess to introduce Patrick a little bit, you may know him. He's, an, he's the author of an incredible book called Planted, Belief and Belonging in an Age of Doubt. And for me, this book was in some ways a pioneering uh, experience for me just because it was one of the first books or the some of the first content I was exposed to in regards to doubt and how that fit into our faith. So uh, it's an amazing book. Um, Patrick is also currently, you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of your LinkedIn facts, but currently the Dean of Arts and Humanities at Claremont. Claremont is a school in California. I actually have a friend who goes there and it's a pretty prestigious private graduate school. But I hear, Patrick, that you maybe taking a new position closer to the mountains. Am I right about this? Uh, that, that's true, yeah. So I'm moving from the Utah State University this summer. A little bit of this. Wait, no, not Utah. That's, wait, Utah State? There are so many Utah schools. Yeah, not, not the University of Utah, Utah oh, State no. University in Logan. I have put the U up for the wrong school. Utah, so we're speaking in Logan, correct? Logan, yeah, exactly. Wow, that's exciting. Are you excited to be in Utah? Yeah, I mean, I'm from there. I've got family there and tons of friends, and I'm really looking forward to it. Cool. Well, we're excited to have you here in Utah. Yeah. Um, okay, well, we're happy to have you here, Patrick. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. We're excited to hear your thoughts. Today, we're going to explore uh, an essay that 
um, Patrick wrote for Faith Matters Big Questions Project. The essay will be available on our website, faithmatters.org. And this, the essay that Patrick wrote is about the fallibility of prophets, which is something it's a it's a pretty big topic I think right now and in general and has been and so we're excited to talk about this idea of how we frame prophets and our understanding of of faith and our understanding of our membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and and how that all fits together so we're excited to discuss that the essay it will be an interesting read that will be on our website for the listeners to check out so with that, um, Tim, why don't you t- why don't you talk about the the quote that we yeah. discussed earlier in Planted? Yeah. So Patrick, in your in your book Planted, um, you re- you relate the the joke that that goes Catholics teach that the Pope is infallible, but nobody believes it. Mormons teach that the prophet is fallible, but nobody believes it. And to the extent that that's true, and that culturally at least we do have. Uh, this general idea, even though we, even though we specifically say that we don't believe in the infallibility of, of prophets, there is a sense that we sort of place this air of infallibility on, on our leadership. And to the extent that, that, that that's true, how did, we, how did we get here? And you're, you're a historian. Um, what's been sort of the background leading up to where we are as we approach this issue right now? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and, and I think that we we sort of wrestle with it culturally because in some ways we're we're kind of willing to admit that leaders in the far distant past occasionally made mistakes, right? So, yeah. so I think we can wrap our minds around the fact that Brigham Young uh, maybe made some mistakes, and um, and we probably don't know very much about most presidents of the church actually, like how much does anybody know about George Albert Smith, right? Yeah. Um, so so it's, it's hard for us to kind of apply that consistently across the board. But then it, we become very uncomfortable talking about it with, with current or recent presidents of the church, essentially the ones in our lifetime, right? And, and it's really hard to talk about. And so how did, how did it come about? I mean, my, my sense is that it began really early on and it began by anti-Mormons essentially setting the agenda for us that one of the very earliest attacks on Joseph Smith, actually in the first major anti-Mormon book, it's called Mormonism Unveiled, uh, they went and they did research with people that knew Joseph Smith growing up, growing up in, in Palmyra and with the Smith family. And, and they came back you know, with these reports that they were kind of lazy ne'er-do-wells, that they were involved in folk magic and, and this and that. And you know, they, 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 it was a bit of a smear campaign on the Smith family. And, and the message was, aha, he can't possibly be a real prophet if in fact he has feet of clay. Right. If, if he's just kind of a normal human being with all of the foibles and frailties of, of any other sort of typical frontier family. And so, so that was an agenda set by by these anti-Mormons, these, these opponents to Joseph Smith and, and, the, and the, the early Latter-day Saints. And, and I don't think that it was a very theologically astute argument because all they had to do was open their Bible and find lots of prophets who have feet of clay. But nevertheless, that was the argument that they made. And, and to be honest, the saints took the bait and, and they responded by defending fiercely the character of Joseph Smith and, and all of the other prophets and, and sort of equating the two, that, that if God called a prophet, then, then that prophet must be a special human being, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think we, we got, we, and, and I understand why, right? You, you want to be loyal to your friends. You want to be loyal to your leaders. Joseph Smith was unfairly charged with a lot of things. And um, so I understand the, the very human impulse to want to defend your friends, but, but I think we sort of took the, took the bait that, that took us down a road that, that, that wasn't necessarily actually theologically very productive for us. So, and I think that sort of didn't, then set us up since then. What, what's interesting about that, thank you for sharing that. What's so interesting is that it feels like we unknowingly fell into a perspective that's really based around semantics in some senses from what you say is maybe we didn't clarify what we meant by profit in in some senses or or maybe that's simplifying it too much but that the anti-mormon literature what was released or that bait that we were given was this is what it means this is what 
you can expect. And then it was like, okay, okay, that's what, that's what we're going to expect. And, and it, in a lot of senses, and I think we do this as humans, we unknowingly fell into that definition. Yeah, even though the Lord himself wanted to keep us out of the trap. So in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, which obviously was not the first section revealed, but, but the Lord wanted it to be placed first. So it's the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants. It has a very strong doctrine where the Lord is talking about the prophets and he says that he will work through the weak things of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like right there at the beginning of the revelations in section one, where God is, is trying to keep us away from any notion of prophetolatry or prophet worship to say that, hey guys, the story's about me. The story is about the restoration of the gospel. The story is about the redemption of Jesus Christ. I use prophets uh, to accomplish my ends and and to accomplish my will the same way that I use all human beings, right? He he calls the weak and the simple. Um, So it's, it's a remarkable doctrine and a strong doctrine that we have prophets and apostles. But the Lord, right at the beginning of the restoration, is saying, hey, guys, don't fall for this this idea that the that, that prophets are sort of superhuman in, in some way or, or transcend mortal probation with, with the propensity to sin and error. And do you feel like we continue to fall into that trap today? Or is it more of that's our, that's our heritage and we've, we've brought it down through the generations and continue, continue to do it? Or are, yeah. there, or are there similar things happening today and that's how we like to fend off attacks, et, et cetera? Well, I I think it's definitely a a cultural and historical inheritance for us. It's been passed down. And also, look, I mean, we are, you know, our our faith and and, uh, our our beliefs and and our church have continued to be the the objects of of ridicule at at times. And um, sometimes for self-inflicted wounds, right? I mean, but but oftentimes, you know, for for other people looking in and not understanding or, or taking pot shots. So there's, there has been a strong sense of loyalty, of, of sort of closing ranks, circling the wagons. And so, so that, there's that part of it, the kind of social psychology of a group that, that sometimes feels persecuted, right? And, and we can't admit any weakness to the outside world. We can't admit any, any flaws or any errors because then they're just going to latch on to that. So I think that's part of it. But then the other part of it is that we don't want to water down or dilute the remarkable doctrine that God has called prophets and apostles. So we don't want to go on the other side of the spectrum and say, oh, you know what, prophets, it's not that big a deal anyway, right? Um, yeah. And so, so we've struggled to kind of find that middle path in which we can boldly uh, affirm the doctrine that God has called prophets and apostles without turning them into something that they're not. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that begs the question for me, as I've gone through my own journey of understanding the doctrine of prophets, specifically in my personal life, I think we can speak of things as prophets and what do we think about this, but really how it affects us personally, if you are a member of the church or, or if you're not. Um, and so going through this conversation and identifying, okay, what is a prophet not? A prophet is not perfect. A prophet is not expected to be a prophet. I think for me, that begs the question of what is a prophet then? And I, I think you touched on that a little bit, but really for me, grappling with this idea of, okay, if a prophet is not someone to be uh, worshipped or exalted, or even that everything a prophet says is, uh, I don't know, I hesitate to use the word perfect, overuse that word but if that's not what a prophet is then where do I put a prophet and 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 I don't know if we have necessarily answers for that but I'd be interested in how do we create a healthy relationship with this idea of a prophet and is that as a guide or is it as I mean for you how have you kind of identified that relationship yeah, for, for me, it's, I, I think it's a great way to frame it. So both what a prophet isn't, but then we also have to come up with what a prophet is. Because, because in, in talking about prophetic fallibility, it, it, there's a danger there, too, of leaving um, sort of nothing, that there's nothing left, right? I mean, if, if, if you peel away these layers, is there anything at the center of the onion? Right. And 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 I want to affirm that there is. And so what do I think of a prophet is? I think a prophet is is really, especially in our modern church, and, and I think there's some differences with Old Testament prophets, but in our modern church, I, th- I think really a, a prophet is, there are three things. They are servants, they're messengers, and they are witnesses. 
And all of those things are, exist in relationship to the person that they serve, the person whose messages they give, and the person that they're witness of, and that's Jesus Christ. And, and so I, I like to think of it that, that it's, we don't look to the prophets, we look through them to Jesus Christ, who, who's the real object of our worship. So, so prophets are essential. I mean, the, the only things that I know about Jesus Christ have been mediated through prophets, either ancient or modern, right? What do I know about Jesus Christ? It all came through the New Testament, right? Through people who wrote witnesses of him, who, who were his apostles and, and who witnessed of him. I, I've never met him. I have no direct unmediated knowledge about my Lord and Savior, right? Uh, in, in terms of his life, his atonement, those kinds of things. Um, that all came through prophets and apostles and the same in the modern age, right? The things that we know were mediated through prophets and apostles. So I'm incredibly grateful for this gift. But again, I don't wanna focus on them. Uh, because I recognize that their role is as servants, as witnesses, and as messengers. Interesting. Now, I'm, I'm curious, too, because um, when I think about, like, I think when I was maybe much younger and hadn't thought about this too much, I thought of, of prophets as receiving uh, instructions or, you know, revelation or inspiration in a way that's really different than the way we as rank-and-file members of the church receive it. The, to use an analogy, I, I would imagine prophets get sort of these direct divine text messages that have explicit, clear instructions. And in the meantime, we're sort of just like wandering around and occasionally getting nudged in a direction and feeling like, okay, that's my, that's my inspiration, that's, that's my revelation. But I think if you look at it historically, there's an argument to be made that, that prophets too are being nudged in a particular direction and don't always have that, uh, that, that divine text message. You know, yeah. you, could look at, you could look at mistakes that prophets have met, made or um, sort of a, a, a correlation between the context and, and times that they were in and the decisions that they were making. And so if, if prophets are, are having, receiving revelation by, by nudge, just like, just like we are, rather than by, by text message, what, like, how is it that they are able to be those, you know, those special witnesses? And, and, and how, how is that different you know, than, than us receiving uh, you know, a confirmation uh, about you know the reality of Jesus Christ or of God's existence or or anything really. Yeah, I, you know it's 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 a great question. I'm not sure I know fully the answer to that. I, I I think it's a question about what does that that special mean in special witness. Yeah, right? and and we can recover. There there are some statements by 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 even current apostles that sort of make it sound like that their their witness is not qualitatively different than mine. I mean, they certainly have much more experience than I do. I mean, they've been at this a lot longer. And so, so I trust that their spiritual sensibilities are more refined uh, and, and are deeper than, than mine. Um, but, you know, I, we, I, I think we also have this folk sensibility that they've all, that they like hang out with Jesus in the temple, right? Um, and I, I just don't, think that's true right yeah. and I don't think that they have like a red phone to the celestial kingdom yeah. um, and and so and again we could pull pull lots of statements from them where, where they essentially say the same thing that their process of inspiration is very similar to that of the rest of us um, they um, but there, there, there is something about the calling which I think is special uh, the, the same way, and, and we all experience this, right? I mean, if, if you're a Relief Society president, you, you know that you get different kinds of revelation that you did before you were Relief Society president, right? And, and this is one of the claims we make in this church, and, and it's remarkable, and it's hard to articulate. It's hard to even put your finger on, but we've all, those of us who have been active in the church and served in callings, we, we know this is true. You know, if, if you served a full-time mission, you know that you had a special kind of inspiration that, that you probably didn't in your civilian life, mm -hmm. right? And, and so I, I, I think God honors the calling. And, uh, and, and so, if, so when I hear special witness, I hear it because that's a, that's a special thing to be called by God to, to lead his church. Something that I thought of, Tim, when you were saying you're a nudge versus text message analogy, which I actually really resonate with, is, is I would even add to it. I think that I also held that belief that 
revelation to a prophet was extremely clear, full of clarity, full of seriously Jesus in the celestial room, like, all right, boys, this is what I think needs to happen. Here we go. Here, here, here's the font size and everything. Yeah, yeah exactly. A hundred percent. So not only in nature of how that revelation came, but I think to add to that, something that I grappled with was not only the the form that that revelation came in, but the importance of revelation. I think for a long time, I felt that God spoke to me about if I needed to, the type of cereal to eat or who to date or these different things, but on big issues like who's allowed to have the priesthood and who's allowed to be together and who's, don't, you know, those big who's allowed to, a lot of those questions or a lot of I don't feel good about this, or I don't know about these big, deep heart and soul questions. I think for a long time, I felt were off limits to me because I didn't have that special calling. And so not only was I maybe not in the place to get the text message, but the text messages that I was getting or the nudges that I were I was getting were in some ways of, of lesser nature, or I, or I had a hard time trusting that I was allowed to get revelation or receive revelation from God that, that was important I, I don't know if important is the word but important or serious in nature and that I had to just trust what I heard which I don't think is bad I don't think that trust or that confidence I feel that deeply in a lot of our leaders but I think that's another part of that is for me letting go of that idea that I couldn't but embracing that I could also talk to God about those things yeah, so so since that you, you you felt like that revelation maybe about like doctrinal things or something that was somebody else's job, and you were supposed to just get revelation about your personal life. Yeah, totally, and not only someone else's job, um, but that it was hard to trust. Well, and I think this is still the case, to be honest. I think it can be really hard to find peace with feeling a certain way between you and God about something that maybe contradicts or is slightly different from what we're hearing. And I don't know if we need to go too deep into that, but it is, it is a, an, an interesting experience to figure out, you know, how much do I really take, take charge of my agency and my ownership in receiving revelation? Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's a huge question, I, I think. And, and it does get into the, the really sticky issue of what if my revelation doesn't line up with their revelation, yep. right? And what if I'm feeling something really strongly that, that, that doesn't seem to be 100% in line with them? I, I, think, I think that's where we, and, and, and that's where we're afraid to, to kind of have the conversation where we're, I, I think that's one of the toughest things because I think we have developed almost no resources <laughs> to, to, to really talk about that in, in a really serious way. Um, what, what happens and, and not, not when just like you think something different or where your maybe politics are different or something like that, but if really truly, um, you know, the Holy spirit, that, that you've recognized and that has taught you all the other gospel truths, you know, it, it, that, that you've cultivated in, in learning to listen to the Holy Spirit. What if, what if that same sensibility puts you in a, in a slightly or, or maybe significantly different place on a particular issue, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's really, you know, so, so let's, let's appeal just to, to history because it's always safer, right? What if you were a member of the church before 1978 and and you felt your revelation said to you, you know what this 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 policy slash doctrine isn't right. Um, you know what what do you do when when that happens? That is a really tough. Yeah, especially because we teach not only that we have the light of Christ, which we sort of equate with our our conscience, but that we've if we've been baptized and and received the gift of the Holy Ghost, that we actually have a a, a guiding spirit that is able to teach us teach us the truth and so if we we feel like i think and we're taught that if we if we pray and are humble and study then we can we can receive revelation on on things for ourselves and so it, it can be really tough when you feel like i came to something and the prophet came to something else and this, this is a zero-sum game and there's there's not a way uh there's there's not a way to, to make those line up 
and I think I was just reading this this chapter in Planted actually um, actually Patrick and um, you say there are no rules for what to do in every case only only principles to apply with the assistance assistance of the Spirit we find ways to balance faith patience grace forgiveness integrity conscience community and covenant and I think for now I'm not sure there is a better answer than that and I wish there I wish there were but it's looking at all of the obligations all of the responsibilities all of the uh, all of the inspiration, all the experience that we have that, and that others have, and trying to, trying to balance each of those things in, in each case. And I think it's tough. I think it's strenuous. I think it's uncomfortable, but I, I'm not sure. And maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe, maybe when, when God set the wheels in motion with this whole thing, like that's what he intended, you know, for us to, to have that struggle. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you read that quote, Tim, because it, um, I think sometimes we can reduce our faith in the prophets um, to like the the hardest thing about it, mm-hmm. right? Um, or or like our biggest disagreement, whatever that might be, historically or contemporary, and 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 forgetting that uh, actually there's been a pretty stable core over nearly two hundred years that has led us to where we are now in in terms of the core teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I think they are called to be messengers and witnesses of in terms of the atonement, the restoration, uh, God's love for us and the, and you know, the, the role of the gospel in our lives. There's, um, so, so I I think we can become so hyper-focused on, on that really strenuous thing. Right. And, And it's not to marginalize or trivialize it one bit. Right. Um, but, but it's so important to think about, as you just said, all of the commitments that we have and all of the experiences we have and think about it holistically. Yeah. So I'm curious, there's, I think there's this idea out there that um, maybe, you know, prophets are, are imperfect, but a lot of times not when they're, when they're acting in their official capacity and when they're speaking over the pulpit or when they're, uh, when they're acting in that, in that official capacity, they really, they're really speaking for God and there are, there are no mistakes. And one context that I think about that in is the, is the priesthood temple ban. And I think there's this idea out there that um, for reasons beyond maybe what we understand that that was right for its time, you know, and, uh, and, you know, for the hundred and I don't know, 128 years that it was, that it was around, that was God's will, even though, um, even though obviously we believe that God loves his children, all of his children, equally. And it, it, I, I'm curious, Patrick, does that, does that reasoning resonate with you? And would we, would we say, because that was sort of so official, like it must have, been, must have been right, and do we need to find a way to make that work? Or are we okay and comfortable saying that was, that was not right? You know, we, that, was, that was wrong, and, and eventually we figured it out, you know? Yeah, I think it's a terrific question, Tim. Um, and there are a lot of people in the church um, who I've, I've talked with, uh, who I respect deeply, um, who, who hold that view uh, about the priesthood and temple ban, that there's something so significant, uh, something that shaped the, the history of the church and our ability to minister to, to such a large percentage of God's children, something like that could not have happened without in some way, shape, or form God having a hand or at least a finger in it, right? Um, I, and, and again, this, this is a view that's held by a lot of people um, who, who I really deeply respect. And so I, I respect that view because of that. Um, it's not the view that I have. Um, and so I, I feel like I can honestly and, and even maybe faithfully disagree with, with that view. Um, partly as a historian, because uh, there's actually no historical evidence for anything like a revelation uh, that, that got the ban going. So, so partly I, I lean on the, the tools and, and what we know um, from the historical evidence, but also I, I think it's entirely possible to, to think theologically about a way that even something so significant that the church could still be true uh, in its fundamental aspects and yet nevertheless be in error, uh, even for a very long time. 
and there's language in the scriptures about the, the church, uh, about the church being condemned for various things. For instance, it's neglect to the Book of Mormon. So actually, President Benson talked about that uh, when he became president of the church after 1978, and he says the church is still under condemnation for neglecting the Book of Mormon. Okay, so that's an amazing statement, right? President Benson said that for over 150 years, the church had been in condemnation for neglecting the Book of Mormon, but nevertheless was still the true church. So I think it's entirely possible for us to think about ways in which the church could be in error on a particular issue, not on, not on the, its core witness of Jesus Christ and the restoration of the gospel uh, and, and, and still be true. So, so again, I think honest people are, can disagree about this, um, but I, I think there's a way to think about this in, in a faithful way and still believe that that ban uh, was not instituted or sanctioned by God. And I think just to add a, a question and a perspective, I think that evokes this follow-up question for me of if that could be the case, right? That the church is in error on a specific issue and not on that underlying witness, but maybe on a specific issue because of that that's bound to happen at some point. For me, that brings up this question of, and, and I don't think there's an answer to this, at least if there is, I don't know it. But what, what then do we do you know, when, when we may happen to fall on the other side of the issue? Yeah. Yeah, again, I mean, what, what, what do you do if, if you're a member of the church before 1978 and you feel not only through your own conscience, but through your, through your revelation that the, that the uh, policy or doctrine is wrong? I, I, I personally believe that... Um, that as much as possible, you, you try to stay with the church and focus on, you know, the, the 99 other things uh, that, that are right, uh, rather than the one, even if it's a really big one. At the same time, I have to admit, I can't fault, uh, I, I know of a number of, of people, both African American and, and Anglo, uh, who once they learned about the ban, uh, you know, especially when they were investigating the church, they, they decided that they couldn't join the church. Um, it's hard for me to fault that view, right? Um, and I, I would hope that those at least, you know, the, the, that's for people who are investigators, who, you know, who hadn't yet had a lot of a, a lifetime or rich experiences when the, with the church. And so that issue, I, I can understand how it becomes, you know, just overshadows everything else. But one would hope that, that for people who have been in the church for a long time, that they're able to weigh things in the balance, right? And recognize all the other, you know, gifts and, and, and truths and, and uh, experiences that they've had within the church uh, that can counterbalance that, that one thing that deeply troubles them. And that they can look at it holistically. Again, I, I, it's, it's, it's very hard. And I, I think it's a good philosophical question. At what point does one, that, that one thing does does it in some way uh, undermine the other things? But but at least in this case, um, uh, I, I think there's a way for us to to exercise discernment and kind of separate some of these things and focus instead on on what is our core witness? Why are we members of the church? And what do we think the church really is? Yeah, and I think thinking can they coexist? Can yeah. this, this that I have and this faith and connection to the church can they coexist with each other? And that's, yeah, it's a hard question, but I think you're right, a good good debate to have with God. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and um, I've heard Terrell Givens use the, the term um, faithful provocateur, which has always resonated with me. And I think there is a way, and uh, for example, like within, you know, within Sunday school, within uh, the, you know, your ward members that you talk to outside of church, within your own family, I think you can, uh, you can teach principles that, that you believe in, uh, you can you can point to the I, I think uh, you know especially on social issues like with the uh, up and coming generation this is on a lot of our minds and yeah. um, I think you can point to that big tent version of the church that you that you hope for and at the same time I think you can uh, you can remain faithful in your callings you can uh, continue to serve in your in your ward in your community and in a lot of ways I think those things that you do uh, to be faithful and serve they're what give you the credibility to maybe push things you know, just ever so slightly in, in the direction that you hope uh, you, you might see the church go one day.
And so yeah. I, that's, that's my approach at least. Yeah, and I think you can continue to absolutely affirm the, the principle and doctrine of living prophets and apostles that God has called, uh, even while sometimes disagreeing with them. Again, we do this with our bishops all the time, right? I mean, yeah. we, uh, and you, ourselves. And ourselves, right? Yeah, I mean, I can say, you know, I'm doing my best as a disciple of Christ, and guess what? I, I got something wrong today or yesterday, or I, I get yeah. some, some things really wrong, or I raise my hand and I sustain my bishop and my stake president, and then, you know, guess what? I really disagree with them on some things. And so so there, there's a way that we do this and we experience it, we model it at the local level. And so I think it's just, it, it just becomes a kind of mental and theological and spiritual exercise for us to scale that up. Um, and think about what does that look like at the at the prophetic level. And, and we have lots of examples throughout the history of the church where um, presidents of the church taught things from the pulpit and the membership of the church just kind of shrugged. <laughs> I mean, I, I think of blood atonement. I mean, yeah. Brigham Young, yeah. all the kinds of things that we say, what makes for prophetic and authoritative teaching, right? So was it from the pulpit? Was, in his, was it in his office as a prophet? Was it taught repeatedly? Okay, so blood atonement is one of those doctrines like check, 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 all of those things that should have made it an authoritative doctrine of the church. And, and Brigham Young did this for years and years. He wouldn't let go of the dang thing. And, and, the, and the membership of the church really just shrugged. I mean, a few people sort of got on board, but, but, but for the most part, they were like, nah, that's not really us. Not, not the thanks, Brigham, right? And th there's a kind of authority of the membership of the church that gets exercised in, in that way when the spirit just does not testify to, to the rest of the body of Christ of, mm -hmm. of that one thing, even if it's strenuously taught by a prophet over the pulpit. So it's, this is all a, a kind of balance in, in terms of the way that the, these things play out. I wonder too, as I've thought about this and as you guys are speaking about this, it it really does push me to think about, and I don't want to get too tangential on this idea, but to think about uh, that God's purpose for us truly, I think, in the church, in our various communities, in our families, in our relationships, across any, because really all things are relationships, we're in relation to something, at least in my where I view the world, and and I think our relationship with prophets and our relationship with the church, although sometimes inconvenient in its reality of frailty, I think that that inconvenience and that frailty in some ways may push us to engage with God in a deeper way than we may have otherwise. In those, in those moments of, I'm receiving deep revelation about something that's pretty serious for me that maybe is, is contrary to the you know, what I'm hearing from the church or what I'm hearing, not even maybe from the prophets, but from a lot of members or, or whatnot, that that dissonance in some ways, I think can engage us in a process of, of turmoil, but also of deep growth of this idea that, that in some way that process can push us away from the laziness that is, is an easy trap to fall into. And I don't, I don't mean to say that uh, yeah, I don't, hopefully I'm just saying what I mean to say with that, but that, that process, I don't, I don't know if I know the, the end of that, but is in, in, in any sense, we're meeting the goal of growth, which truly is in my mind, pretty, my mind, um, pretty paramount. So I think that's, and it is going to be uncomfortable sometimes. And I mean, in, in sacrament meeting today, I heard, uh, somebody, the speaker, um, read a quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell that I've heard before, but it, it goes something like, you know, if, if, if we're really serious about our discipleship, there will be moments in which we are tested in really hard ways, right? The, the, the ways that force us to stretch the most in, in whatever that is. And, and I, I think that's really true that, um, uh, that I don't think that over the course of our lifetime and certainly not over the course of the eternities, that, that we're ever gonna get there just by being on cruise control, right? We're, we're gonna have to, to throw this thing in manual at, at some point and, and really you know, kind of navigate and figure out what this means for us. And, and that's, that's when you have to dig deep and really think about what do I believe in? And, and it, it's a combination of heart and mind. Uh, I, I, th I think if we leave it only to our mind, 
we're, we're not going to be open to all the ways that the Lord has to speak to us. But if we, if we, if it's all heart and if we close off the mind, um, then I think we're shutting off one of the ways that God communicates with us too. So it's, it's gotta be a combination of those two things, but it's, it, it, it's, it is, there will be moments where not just your, your faith is, is tested in the sense that we all have adversity, right? But actually you really got to figure out some of this stuff for yourself in ways that nobody else can really give you an answer, even a video chat from three very intelligent people. Um, in some ways, you, you've, you've got to figure it out on your own. Yeah, and I, I think what's interesting, a question that that sort of brings up for me is obviously there is a huge amount of, of personal growth that could come through, uh, through that kind of a struggle. But I wonder about, too, if you are going through that, like, is there, is there a, a responsibility that members have to help the church through growth as well? Or is that responsibility purely on the part of our leaders and, and prophets? And I, I would, I, I, I'm sort of betraying what I think about this a little bit here, I think. But if you look at the course of history, um, for example, the, the priesthood temple ban, I don't think that the change to that policy that happened in 1978 happened in a vacuum. You know, I think, uh, I, I think it would be, um, it, it, we'd be discrediting the, the activists and members of the church who were praying and it, it, maybe fighting is too strong a word, but who were pushing for, for things to change if we said this was just a lightning bolt, you know? And so I, I think at some point, I mean, part of that struggle is, is not just growing ourselves, but figuring out, mm. is there a way for me to help push, uh, you know, our push the church forward as well. And I'm curious what, what you think, I guess, about that. Yeah, so I, th I think um, one thing is I don't want to make a distinction between me and the church. I am the church. You are the church, right? Mm -hmm. we, we are all the church and, and, and the body of Christ. Um, uh, now, granted, we don't, don't all, the, the, the church does have a kind of vertical authority structure, right? And, and we understand the way that the priesthood leadership works all the way up to the first presidency and to the president of the church. But, um, but I, um, I take very seriously my membership in the body of Christ and, and that I have obligations to it uh, and that I have to, I have to own it uh, in, in a really serious way. And so, um, yeah, I, I think we'll all find different ways to do that. You know, we, we've heard from the pulpit, uh, you know, periodically that the church is not a democracy. And, and that's, tr that's true. We, we, don't, we don't determine uh, policy or doctrine through parliamentary procedures and things like that. But I do believe that changes come um, I mean, the phrase I like to use is, is the spirit moves upon the waters, right? And, and it, it's, it's sort of intangible and it's, it's mysterious, even maybe a little bit mystical. But, but when, when there's a, a sense of unrest uh, in the church, when, when there's a sense that there's a kind of critical mass or even maybe just critical yeast of, of, of members of the church um, who for whatever reason, some doctrine or policy isn't sitting well with them, and, the, and they seek to genuinely, authentically, and faithfully, you know, wrestle with this, I think that's when we open ourselves up, not just individually, but as a people, mm. um, to, to God to take us into a new place. And so that all sounds kind of vague, and I know it is. Um, we, we could look at all, we could look at different moments in history, you, you have cited 1978, I think you're exactly right. And we could look at other moments in history too, where there was something going on and it was, it was a shared effort, uh, both kind of from the bottom up and from the top down. Which I, I love those thoughts. I think one, you saying it's, I don't like to separate myself from this idea of the church. I found for a long time, a lot of my healing for my personal struggle or faith journey or transition or whatnot a lot of that healing came from reuniting myself with that idea instead of this idea of the church right. and me as a little person below it like you know <laughs> who knows how I'm even allowed to be involved in this or or there's the, this meta power of men to be I mean that's what yep. felt to me as a woman mm -hmm. and kind of reuniting myself with the idea of the body of Christ which felt like a healthier way for me to identify my unity with the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints so i really value that thought and i also value the idea of 
really having to expand our definition of those things and expand ourselves in a way that 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 vagueness that you touched on or that kind of meta ideas i think in a lot of ways pushes us to say not everything is black and white and there are a lot of things but I struggle or I have dissonance or the prophet says this, or this is brought up in general conference. Can I still go to my ward? Can I still contribute? How do I maintain this relationship? And I think, and this is just my thoughts. And and I think you spoke maybe, maybe a little bit to this, but this idea that it's okay to expand ourselves a little bit and sit with that uncomfortableness and, and continue to contribute to the body of Christ because Christ is perfect, but the body of Christ is full of us, and that is a different story. So I I appreciate those thoughts. Something I want um, to hear from you about, I think there's, in this conversation, a lot of ways that we can discuss the this topic um, to maybe make sense or make peace of it in our minds and how we define things or whatnot. Something that uh, for me, a lot of previously, and you know, still probably exists in some sense for me, but previously a lot of my dissonance with my church membership or with understanding the role of prophets um, had to do with the, some deep experiences of betrayal that I felt uh, in relation to the beliefs that I was taught growing up that later I as I kind of re-sifted through them, felt like, wow, that was not healthy or that was not good. I was, I grew up in California. I was pretty involved with Prop 8 and that was a pretty strong experience of that. And, and I think the church has shifted a lot of things in that context, but still that sense of betrayal, I think that sense of pain, that sense of hurt and distrust was a wound for me. And, and we can talk about this in reframing and all those things, but I don't think that that necessarily heals those wounds fully. And so, and, and maybe I think it contributes for sure, but I'm wondering for a long time, I had a hard time finding peace with that and repairing that relationship of trust because from a psychological, I mean, I studied psychology, I studied relationships and that relationship with leadership was damaged for me. And I think that that is an experience that some people have. So I'm, I'm wondering your experience and, and maybe to speak to that. Yeah, no, thanks for sharing that. I mean, um, I have to say that I'm glad I didn't live in California in 2008. <laughs> I'm, yeah, it was hard. I will not lie. It was very, it, it was very hard and still is sometimes because, yeah. well, and, you know, I moved here in, in 2011. So shortly after it, yeah. and I've just heard so many stories from people. I mean, the, it is, it is still very real yeah. uh, in, in lots of different ways and with, with people all over the map in terms of their relationship to it and strong feelings and, and experiences. And, and I, I think what, what you just brought up is so important to recognize, um, that to, to continue to use Paul's metaphor of the body of Christ, that there is a lot of pain in, in the body, mm-hmm. right? That there are wounds within the body, and some of those are self-inflicted wounds. Uh, some of those are wounds where one part of the body hurt another part of the body. Maybe intentionally, maybe not, right? Maybe, maybe everybody thought that they were, they were doing the right thing, and, and, and maybe, maybe they were, and maybe and there are unintended consequences, right? You can spin, spin this out lots of different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we have to acknowledge in, in ways that we're not very good at that there is real pain and hurt and loss and betrayal and grief with, within the body of Christ, not just because of outside enemies. That, that's the way we framed it for a long time, right? It's like mm-hmm. the good guys versus the bad guys, the outside versus the inside. And again, that's why we circled wagons. But we have to recognize that we hurt each other too. And, and that sometimes even doing what we think is the right thing has caused pain uh, inside. And so I, a, a couple of things. One, I, I think we... Um, hopefully we can find ways to, to be honest and, and to share that with one another and then to, to do what our baptismal covenants call us to do is to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. That we don't get to decide what their pain is or say, oh, you have lung cancer, so I'm going to feel sorry for you. Oh, but you, you, you feel 
pain about your experience in the church, sorry, I'm, I'm not going to mourn with you about that. I mean, our, our baptismal covenant does not allow us to be choosy in that way. Um, so we have to do that. And then the other thing is to recognize, I think that, you know, there's the great quote from Joseph Smith, where, where he talked about his own government of the church, but I think it's the way that God leads the church as well, where he says, I teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. And, and I think we have to come to some peace with that and what that really means. And then, and then recognize that we are in this together. We're all on this side of the veil, sort of fumbling about in, in more or less mist of darkness, all fumbling towards the tree. And uh, can we do it together? Uh, even when we trip over one another and, and even bump into each other and cause pain for one another, can we pick each other up and can we do it together? Mm -hmm. And one, um, one thing I've been thinking about, Patrick, is my experience, my, I, I, if we want to use the term faith crisis, or at least when I went through a, a really trying time that led to, you know, some kind of transition in my faith, my, um, it, was, it was different than, than Kate's um, uh, experience that she just related with Prop 8. But I, mine started, you know, a couple of years after my mission when I read Rough Stone Rolling for the first time, and, you know, which is a very, you know, aptly titled book. Um, and I think uh, I, I saw these, I, I, you know, I saw these warts and these, these things that were in, in Joseph Smith's life that I never expected. And I, what, and, and I guess more generally, if you were to look at, you know, the top five issues that people have when they go through a, the stereotypical faith crisis, I mean, you could look at uh, the book of Abraham, you could look at polygamy, you could look at, you know, quotes from Brigham Young, um, priesthood temple ban, LGBTQ issues. Um, I think a lot of times, you know, people will try to, you know, take each of those issues and, and attack it, you know, one by one and try to figure out what's my answer here, what's my answer here, what's my answer here. But the thread that sort of ties them all together really or could be, you know, prophetic validability and, and reliability. And, that, and not to say that, oh, they were wrong on all these things, right? right. That's not, that, I don't think that's the answer. But I think uh, what was tough for me was I came into it with this naive view that, each of the, that each of these things happened according to according to God's will, and eventually the dissonance became became too much. And if I if I allowed a little bit if if I allowed myself to think, well, you know, I get to decide what I think about that, you know. And there's there's potential that there was um, that 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 this wasn't perfect, you know, that these were these were imperfect men that that set these things in motion. And that sort of unlocked a little bit of peace for me, you know, not, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect, but I stopped needing to, um, to some extent, uh, just go after, go after those issues really, really specifically and say, okay, there's room for me to, there's room for me to explore and have a, have an open mind about what's happened here. And I think you relate in Planted that you've spoken to, you've spoken to many people that have maybe gone through those types of, those types of things and asked those questions. And I'm curious if you were to, Let's say you were talking to somebody that were that was, you know, a few months in to you know discovering something in the church's history that's just really uh, that's really bothering them. That's that's caused a lot of that's caused a lot of dissonance or a lot of pain. What are what what would you recommend to that person? How how would you talk to them? And would uh, would prophetic fallibility play a big uh, play a big role in what you in what you would say? Yeah, it, it, it would, because I, I, I think you're right. Um, I, at least I feel that for almost any of these issues that we're talking about, there is an undercurrent of questions about what does it mean to, to have and sustain living prophets. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's the theological thread that connects virtually all of these issues. Um, and and because we can... Um, there is a sense, and Elder Renlund talked about this recently, the sense of kind of playing whack-a-mole, right? I mean, you, you solve one thing, but then another thing pops up, right? Yeah. So unless you, unless you address the, the kind of underlying issues and identify the underlying issue and, and then wrestle with that, then, then the presenting issues are, are going to keep popping up, you know, just like, uh, um, and, and, and those are all real things, right? Um, and, and, and in some ways, actually, uh, addressing the underlying issue, what it does though is it gives you a better foundation to address all of them when 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 they pop up. So you're not just doing them individually. And so you know one of the things that that I think is so important is that people um, they they don't sense 
they don't feel a sense of shame or of guilt or those kinds of things for asking these kinds of questions that they need to, to um, remain confident in their ability to approach God for answers. Um, and then also that, that I think it's really important that they continue to kind of lean into the spiritual practices that have got them to where they are at this point. And, and I know it, it sounds so Pollyannish and, and we can, we can just rattle off the Sunday school answers of pray and, and go to church and read scriptures and so forth. Those things are so essential actually um, because, because it's going to force you to pray in a different kind of way. Right. So it's not praying the same way you did when you were a 12 year old kid or, or when everything was fine, but, but to dig deeper into your prayer life. Um, you're going to read scriptures, not in a peripheral or perfunctory way, but you're going to dig deeper into them and try to figure out what are they really saying. And actually, when it comes to the matter of prophets, they say rather different things than what we oftentimes uh, assume or, or, or teach in the church. And actually, I think they are the key to unlocking this puzzle in particular on, on, on prophets. Mm. Um, and, and, and the same with your church life, right? It's not just going to be attending church in a perfunctory way. Um, but it's going to be digging in and really thinking about what it means to be a part of a community uh, and and what you're getting out of it, what you're giving. And, and so those things are so important. Um, and, and and then just to, to, to be patient with it. You know, I talk in the book about section 21, verse 5, that talks about following the words of the prophets in all patience and faith. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it takes faith to follow a prophet, but it also takes patience. And um, I think patience is one of the hardest things for us to do, to, to sort of wait on the Lord and, and to even wait on our own heart and mind to kind of work these things out because they are tough and answers to very complex problems usually don't come just overnight. Something that I've, as you say that, just comes to me so strongly is this idea that, and I think re- for even in this conversation, reframing my relationship with the church to be that body of Christ that we've talked about over and over really makes me think of the, the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, maybe the idea or the, or not the idea, the reality that we are in families that just our nature of existence is situated in many little communities of individuals like parents, for example, that are calling a lot of the shots for our lives. And at one point in your adolescence to adulthood, depending on your trajectory of development, you realize one day that your parents are equally as messed up as everybody else, sometimes more, sometimes less. But that can be a very crazy experience as a young adult, teenager, wherever you are, 40 year old, whenever you realize that your parents aren't perfect, that creates in some ways this sense of panic for some people. And I think for me, as I figured out that, oh, my parents are experiencing the same experience that I am as a person. They're going through their own things there, but they have been such a guide for me and I can be with them in this. I can be with them in this experience of learning and maybe even thinking of the church in a similar way of we're all experiencing this. And in some ways that spiritual refinement that you talked about that prophets have and that special witness and that special, special call to be messengers and how you kind of identified that I think is sacred and is so special and maybe viewing it in that way of we are a family, not only just in the church, but as humans that are trying to make it through this and, and, and seeking Christ with the prophets, I think can be really valuable. And, and one thing I wanted to I think put a little bit of focus on and you touched on this in a way that really struck me was that we're all really just trying to make it through this together. We're all stumbling and we're all figuring it out. And I wonder for me, the idea of, of reframing the prophets to be imperfect, but so valuable Mm -hmm. in our faith journey has taken me to this place that I not only am able to say, okay, they're imperfect, but I'm going to live with it. But that that idea that they, although called specially to do a certain work, are equally as 
vulnerable to their humanness as I am, but that God is still deeply willing to work with me on a daily basis. That God is always coming back to me, always giving me another opportunity and doing that with the prophets and doing that with the body of Christ and doing that with the, the, the family of humans that he's created. And, and that, that not only is this frailty or fallibility of prophets, a doctrine that maybe we can find some level of okayness with but that it can actually create like help us feel the true and real grace of god that that is really where the grace of god is is in this struggle of frustration that's where god is that's where the grace is present and for me it's become and i and i hope it could be for us in in some ways one of my biggest testaments of the love of god Amen, amen, amen. I mean, I, I, I think that is it exactly. That we, um, everything you just said is, is exactly right. That, that, that we know that the way that this works in families, that mm -hmm. our parents, that that is a holy and sacred calling. To be a parent, right, to another human being is incredible, no matter how messed up your parents are, right? And, and, and you hope that and, and we know that there are really bad families and dysfunctional families and all that kind of stuff, right? And there's a lot of pain and grief and so forth. But, 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 but there's also something holy and divine ab about the family, um, however it's construed, right? And, the, and, and we say this about the church, right? Oh, the church must be true, or, or the missionaries would have ruined it a long time ago, or, or bishop, you know, right? we, we, we say all these things. And, right, and we... Um, and, and, and we know this is true. And, and I think the same is true about the prophets too, that what it all speaks to for me is exactly what you said. This is about the grace of God. This is about the redemption of Christ, right? This is about the, you know, we're, we're not Calvinists and, and we sort of shy away from Calvinist language, but sometimes it's just the best language in terms of the awesomeness of God, right? Mm -hmm. that, that through the, the, the grace works in ways that are, that are so um, unfathomable to, to us, especially as Mormons, because we talk so much about work and we're so worried about our worthiness and all this kind of stuff, that sometimes we can obscure the grace of God. And, and so for me, that's what all of this message is. I mean, the, for me, the message of the Old Testament is that God is going to choose his people despite abundant evidence that they are so screwed up and so unfaithful and that they're going to every time he tells them to go right they're going to go left and that includes the prophets half the time right and um and but his his grace and his love and his kindness persists through all of it and so for me this is all about how does christ continue to redeem his people and redeem his church I think he's established this church to do some special things in the world. I think he's called us to do some special things in the world. Along the way, we're going to stumble and fall, but he will be there with his grace to redeem us throughout. The, and, and that's true for the, for the prophets, too. So I, I think you put your finger exactly on it. Well, hopefully, I mean, thank you for speaking with us. I think that that, in my mind, might be a, a good note to end on and to hopefully sit with. And I think a lot of the things we've talked about maybe have come for us through this journey and there are individuals that are here or here or somewhere totally else on a different trajectory and different wavelength. But hopefully this conversation can at least instill an idea that um, there's an, ex there's expansive ideas to think about with profits. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I, I just want to say one more thing, you know, because Tim had asked, you know, what other advice do you, do you want to give? And, and what you just said, that the people are at all different places. And when you are, when you're sort of at the beginning of this, it's sort of wrestling with it for the first time or, or maybe really in the thick of it, where it all seems like darkness, where it seems like only questions and your world is spinning, right? It's so disorienting and it's hard to know what to do. And, you know, kind of the last piece of advice I give to people is to hold on to hope, 
right? It is a gospel of hope. God is a God of hope. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite quotes is from Martin Luther King. He says, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I mean, the, the, the nature of the atonement, the nature of believing in God believe, means that you believe that there is a better future out there. You believe that God can control the destiny of the world and the destiny of your life to, to, to make for better things. And so, so, so I just don't, don't let go of hope, right? That, that even when things look so tough, to, to rely on and, and you know people who have maybe gotten a little further in the process and, and hold on to that and just hold on to hope that, that God can see you through even when you're not sure how or, or, or when or, or, or where that could happen. So, so continue to hold on to hope. And the thing is to me too, the, the main message that we've, that we've received from the prophets is to hold on to hope. And that hope really that we have as members of the church is in, is in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Like I picture the analogy of, of like a, a painting, you know, if you, and if you look really, really closely, there may be imperfect brushstrokes and you don't know how the whole thing got created. But if you take a few steps back, you can see a beautiful, a beautiful work of art, you know? And I think the beautiful work of art that the prophets have created over time is this uh, pointing to Jesus Christ who loved us uh, unconditionally, um, perfectly and was able to experience our woundedness, our, uh, our, our difficulties, our trials, including the ones that we are going through when we have, when we have struggles in our faith, you know? And so the, the, the message that we should be receiving rather than, perhaps rather than looking at, at all the little perfections, at all the little, those little brushstrokes, take a step back and, and say, there's reason, there's reason to hope. You know, and I think that's that's really the message that that I that I try to focus on, even even though at times it is it is difficult to to get away a little bit from the minutia. Yeah. Well, and how beautiful that we have prophets that are that are such powerful witnesses of that of Jesus Christ, and that's really what it's about. So, thank you, Patrick, for being here. Tim, for being here. I'm grateful to have been here. Thank you, Kate. Garrett was here, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, thank you. Great, thanks. Mm -hmm.